Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. Our scripture this morning is from Romans 2, 1 through 4, the righteous judgment of God. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing that very same thing. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with the truth. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do, not, who do such things and yet do them yourselves, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is the word of God for all God's people. Let us say, thanks be to God. So there was a slightly young, naive preacher who started at a new church. And three weeks in, into this sermon series called First Impressions, in which everything seemed to be going swimmingly, he decided to make a point by wearing lobster pajamas up on stage on his third Sunday ever at the church. For those of you who have joined us in the last eight years, that was me. And it's morphed into this Pajama Sunday tradition that we do every Christmas season or every Advent season. But the farther I get away from that moment, the, farther, the, the more closely I ask myself the question, what was I thinking? Because that is not the best way to make a good first impression, at least in normal circumstances. I learned that Creekwood is a very abnormal church. It's a great church. So, but in normal circumstances, you don't wear pajamas to a job interview on some level. And I have to believe that there was just something, I mean, the entire point of the sermon was that from the very moment you get out of bed, before the makeup comes, before the job starts, before the paycheck rolls in, before your wife or husband tell you that they love you, before your kids jump on you in the morning, before your dog sniffs your breakfast and steals, and steals from your plate, you are loved. That God has already begun something that day. God has already said, I love you that day. And I have to believe that in my naivete or stupidity, that God was already doing something at work that day. Last year, during vacation Bible school, I was wandering around like I normally do and usually disrupting lesson plans like I normally do. And I walked into preschool crafts where Casey McCulloch and my own daughter Arden and some other Sue Jarvis were there and, and they were leading these three and four-year-olds in whatever craft they were doing along with the theme that day. And 
as three- and four-year-olds do, sometimes they need a little bit of guidance. And so I went in and thought, well, I could be just an extra set of hands with the glue or the scissors or nothing that I'm talented in. And so I can go make a mess alongside of them. And um, there was one little boy um, who, who doesn't go to this church. He, he, belong, he was part of a group called Interfaith that was come and, and comes and joins with us during VBS. And we're so delighted to always have them um, as part of our community that week. Um, but he was struggling with where to color. And, and the teachers had told them where to color and where to cut and where to glue and where to thread the string. And they had gone through all of the instructions and all of the kids kind of jumped in haphazardly to one direction or another. They knew where to color or where to cut or where to do anything except for this one boy who was sitting there. And there was a little girl by the name of Kelly Grace Burkhart, who is a member here, who must have been, I guess, three or four at the time. And uh, in this group, and while well, everybody else was just scattered around doing their own certain thing or begging for the teacher's attention, Kelly Grace noticed this little boy who didn't know what to do, and, and in a moment of compassion, reached over and kind of pointed and said, you color here, you color here. And the little boy still didn't quite feel comfortable, but so Kelly Grace grabbed the basket of crayons away from everybody else and put it right in front of the boy and handed him a color and said, you color here. And so the boy started coloring and Kelly Grace looked over at this boy who obviously needed some reassurance and said, good job. I paid special attention to this boy after that moment who gained confidence in figuring out what to do and using his own self-esteem to guide and cutting here and gluing there and coloring here. And eventually his craft matched the other kids' crafts and he gained confidence about himself for the rest of the day, as you saw going forward, because a three-year-old had the kindness to lead this other child. I was on a mission trip, senior year of high school. We went up to Denver, Colorado, mainly because my youth minister loved Denver, Colorado, and he wanted to go to Denver. So we went on a mission trip to Denver and went white water rafting and various other things. But we teamed up with this group called Denver Urban Ministries. It was a Christian nonprofit group that sent us in different groups to food pantries and churches and soup kitchens and all sorts of different places to serve around the metro area of Denver and ended up in the basement of a church serving lunch to probably 400 uh, houseless persons that day as they filed through cafeteria style and we tried to make conversation or greet them, treat them with dignity, go sit with them, take their plate for them. We had a, it was a really wonderful experience and had to, got to meet some really wonderful people. But the most interesting person I met that day was the 60-year-old adult volunteer who was serving, uh, I think, sandwiches next to me, who over and over again even though we were there with a Christian youth group in a Christian church, wanted to make sure that I knew he wasn't a Christian. And I remember this moment because he told me about nine times that he wasn't a Christian. And being a high school senior, I didn't care. But he wanted me to make sure, he wanted me to know that he wasn't a Christian but that he could still serve and love and be a good person without being a Christian. And again, as a senior in high school, I didn't care. But he let me know that there are plenty of good people in the world who don't profess the name of Jesus. 
There's a story in Acts chapter 17. It's kind of a little bit toward the middle as Paul's on one of his missionary journeys and he's making his way through uh, the cities in Greece and he ends up in Athens and, and he ends up in this kind of place called Mars Hill or the Areopagus and, and he ends up in the Areopagus, which is the, the court for those who have committed murder or treason because Paul's always getting in trouble. And he ends up in this place where people would commit treason because Paul is a Roman citizen. Greek would have been under Roman influence at the time. And he is preaching the gospel about some god they've never heard of before. This isn't Mars. This isn't Ares. This isn't any of the gods of war or gods of thunder or gods of life or liberty or god, any of the gods they've heard of before. And, and Paul is taken in front of the treason court because he's preaching the gospel that all people should come to know the kindness and the mercy and the justice and the repentance life toward Jesus Christ and what Jesus has freely done for them before they ever knew who Jesus was. And he even points to their temples and says, there's this temple to an unknown God right here. You've been worshiping this God all along. You just didn't have the name for this God. So let me tell you about this God. And it turns out the treason court, which is looking for an excuse to kill him, defers judgment and says, we'd like to talk to you again. This is kind of interesting. We have heard of that God before. We just didn't have a name. And it turns out that people heard that message from Paul and said, yeah, we recognize what you're talking about. That sounds awesome. That's what we've been looking for. And it even names two people, Dionysus and another person who end up following the God that Paul describes, even before recognizing, essentially, that they were already doing so. Maybe just without the right verbiage or without the name. All four of those stories have what we call provenient grace weaving through them. They have provenient grace, which means the grace that comes before. It means the grace that we don't have any control over. It means the grace that God just gives freely before we ever knew the name of Jesus, before we ever knew there was a God. When we were just a small child and didn't have the complete intellectual uh, capacity to understand the nuances of the Trinity, as though any of us can understand the nuances of the Trinity. It's provenient grace that winds through those stories, provenient grace that winds through our lives, that is the grace that God freely extends to us, the kindness that leads us to repentance anyway. It means that God moves first. And provenient grace is the answer to several different questions that come up. It's the answer to how can an imperfect human have a relationship with a perfect God or even come to know a perfect God? Provenient grace is the answer to how can someone so young without the ability to fully comprehend the mystery of Christ, the salvation of Christ, and yet still do works of kindness and goodness that fit right along with what Christ tells us to do in a repentant lifestyle. And how many of y'all have ever said this phrase before or heard this phrase before? Some of the best people I know don't go to church. Some of the nicest, kindness people I know aren't Christians, or they're some member of another religion, perhaps. Provenient grace is our answer to that question as well. And I chose to preach out of 
this little small passage of Romans. I really encourage you to go read all of the first like eight chapters of Romans because it really is this kind of astute theological argument of Paul that has lots of different nuances. And, and we tend to, if you ever were in college and some college missionary handed you a pamphlet called The Romans Road, um, you received six passages from the book of Romans um, that have a good point, but lose a lot of the nuance of the first eight chapters of Romans about what salvation through Christ, through faith, by grace through faith alone, really talks about. And so I chose to pick this passage of Romans because it ends with provenient grace. It ends with God's kindness is meant to bring us to repentance. God's mercy reaches out to us while we were yet sinners, as we'll say in the communion liturgy, but it starts with judgment. Paul even points out that uh, it starts with judgment. Um, do you not despise the riches of it? Do you not realize that God's kindness? This is the prevenient grace, but he starts with, therefore you have no excuse. Whoever you are when you judge others, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. It's Paul's echoing what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. And this is uh, Paul talking about one group of humans trying to impose a standard on another group of humans. And in this context, it is Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians more often being blamed by Paul for imposing their standards of righteousness upon these group of Gentile Christians who have only heard about this God and thought, oh, we've been doing this all along. This sounds really wonderful. Let me change my ways. Let me change my behavior. Let me change my verbiage and become a Christian. And the Jews for so long who have had 613 laws to follow to say, if I'm going to be part of God's grander plan, I have to do X, Y, Z, A, B, C, and then reverse it all through again in this impossible manner of trying to earn salvation. And the, the verb, the action of one imperfect human putting a standard upon another imperfect human, Paul says is ridiculous. It is ridiculous when you as an imperfect human, which none of us can claim to be perfect or infallible or without sin, when one imperfect person goes upon another pers imperfect person and says, you are not doing this right, you must do this if you are going to gain salvation and gain God's love. And there are still Christian messages out there that say, unless you do these things, you will never be loved by God. There are Christian denominations that say, unless you are baptized, God doesn't love you and you are subject to God's wrath. There are Christian denominations that say, unless you have spoken in tongues, God doesn't love you and you are subject to God's wrath. And Paul says that is ridiculous. It's ridiculous to think that anybody who stands under God's judgment themselves can put judgment upon somebody else. Don't you know that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance and not the judgment of some other human being? Don't you know that there's no standard, there's, there's no manner of perfection in which you can earn salvation? And don't you know that there's no perfect people in the world who can take somebody else's salvation away? When we say we are saved by grace through faith, it is that faith that God's grace is doing something in our life. 
It's not something that we are doing. We are being given a free gift to respond to. We are not giving an action step to take. We're responding to God so loving the world that he freely gave, that God freely gave. And that's called grace. Because we didn't earn it. It was given to us. And it's the answer to so many questions we have. Because those questions we have usually try and delineate some binary of who's right and who's wrong and who's good and who's evil, who we should kick out, who we should let in. But when imperfect humans are able to release themselves from sitting in the judge's chair for a little while, it can really free up the possibilities of what God is able to do and free up the possibilities of what we see God doing to build up our own faith. Provenient grace has an interesting history, actually, of, of kind of a concept of how it got developed. Um, there was this really big conundrum in Christian history, starting back even, even in when you read 1 John and some other text from Scripture, James, for one, um, you read some of the, the letters, um, it's a conundrum already, but in the 200s, especially the, or the second century, it really came um, to a head, and it was the conundrum of what happens, or what does it mean, when a baptized Christian commits a grave sin after they've been baptized. And, and they had this delineation, you can find it in 1 Thessalonians, about grave sin versus non-grave sin, or sins that lead to death versus sins that don't lead to death. And essentially, sins that lead to death are murder, adultery, fornication, because church and state were never separated for a long time, treason was in there, um, sins that don't lead to death are, yes, honey, you do look good in that dress, or little white lies, um, things like that. Apparently, your baptism is not null and void if you just lie to your spouse about the way they look that day. Um, there are, so the argument is, the argument was, or the, the conundrum was, is if you're baptized, if you have received the Holy Spirit, if you have taken on this life of Christ, if you have given your life away to the sanctification of God, if you're made holy in that moment, how then can you do something like this? And the problem was, from the 200s all the way until the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment, there and till today, we see baptized Christians doing these things. Because, I mean, and we know, and we've theologized, and we've come to the conclusion that, right, your baptism doesn't completely transform you into a sinless person. It's a constant process. That's why United Methodism talks about this way of salvation. It's a constant process of salvation versus just a moment, because we know that we backslide and we downfall, but they were really nervous about this question. There were even people called the Donatists back in the, 400, the 300s that um, nullified every baptism done by a priest or pastor who had like succumbed to the persecution of the Roman government at the time, they said that anybody they baptized didn't count anymore, as though we hold the power in baptism. But what was interesting is the flip argument came about in the Enlightenment. Atheist authors like David Hume started pointing out, well, you notice Christians that are sinning after their baptism, and you're questioning whether their baptism was real, whether their faith was real, maybe they were never saved to begin with. You're asking these questions. But David Hume and others were recognizing, you're arguing about Christians who have sinned, I notice non-Christians who are doing everything you say you should do. Right? Have you ever said this statement? Some of the best, nicest people I know aren't Christians. Some of the best, nicest people I know have been hurt by church. 
Some of the best, nicest people I know are from a different religion, perhaps. David Hume's asking these questions. Other people, atheist philosophers, are saying, they're challenging the church in the time of the Enlightenment and saying, you're arguing about Christians who have sinned. I'm talking about people who are non-Christians who are doing everything right. And this is where John Wesley comes in. And John Wesley is this incredible practical theologian. He's not living in his books in, the, in some cloister somewhere. He is out and about with the coal miners and the Anglican priests and the royalty and the poor. I mean, he's out doing ministry in the world and, and preaching sermons and coming up with this theology that works in the world. And he notices these same conversations and these same dilemmas coming out. And he recognizes that the problem is that humans are trying to control who's a part of the church. Humans are trying to control who is a part of God's kingdom. Humans are trying to put this binary on good and evil and in and out, and they're basing it entirely upon our standards of judgment as we interpret them from God and through Scripture, but not giving the power to God. And John Calvin and others had tried to give the power to God, but then they didn't give us any power to respond. It was just all God's choice, and we didn't have any choice. And Wesley recognizes, well, we do have choice, and so there's got to be some meet-in-the-middle area there. We know that God gives grace freely when we give our lives to Christ, but we see it happening beforehand, and we see it when we mess up. So that means that God must be doing the primary moving. That it must not be up to us entirely. It must not be if we're a good person. It must not be if we are uh, going to church enough. It must not be if we've said all the right prayers or done all the right rituals. It must be God that's doing the work. And where this is good news, friends, is this is good news for someone like me who loves to stay busy and loves to win. And when I don't win and I'm not busy and I'm not getting all my tasks done and I go home at the end of the day and I think, oh my gosh, I'm a failure, God's doing the work. For other people I know who are perfectionists, who need to get everything right in order to feel control over their life and need to have everything ordered and precise for the world to make sense, but that never happens, God's doing the work and it's going to be okay. For those who are doubting and skeptical and never quite figure things out and have so many questions and they can't make sense of everything, it's going to work out because God is doing the work. God's kindness leads us to this place of finding faith. God's kindness leads us to this place of recognizing the good in the world. God's kindness inspires us to do good in the world even when we don't know who Jesus is. God's power God's work, God's kindness, God's grace is what allows a three-year-old girl to give somebody else life in a VBS classroom. God's power and God's grace and God's kindness is what allows somebody who doesn't even know the name of Jesus to do everything Jesus asks us to do. For those of us sitting in this room, all of those things about myself or those other personalities, provenient grace frees us to simply follow. It frees us to love. It frees us that you don't have to sit in the judgment chair over you or anybody else because God is doing work in everyone's life whom God loves. And what Scripture says is there is no one, no one who is out of the reach of God's love. And it also frees us to find hope in the world and joy in the world. Because all those people you're worried about, 
God's working in their life already. All those people you're scared of, God's working in their life already. All those people that you're terrified about, God's working in their life already. What our job is, is helping them put a name to that. It's to stand in front of someone that we're terrified of or someone that we're worried with, walk with them and show them how God has already been at work in their life, leading them to a place to recognize the goodness of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice offered on their behalf through God, freely given. Friends, prevenient grace, prevenient grace is a ticket not to worry anymore. It's the God we never knew we had. The God we don't have to earn. The God who loves us from the moment we wake up in our lobster pajama pants when we're not smart enough to do the right thing. The God who loves us, who while we were yet sinners, gave his life for us so that we might be free for joyful obedience to love our neighbor as ourself. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we have received your grace. And even if we haven't, Lord, we know it's there. Or we claim that it's there. And so, Lord, as we come to eat at your table, partake in your body and the cup of salvation, may we not come in guilt. May we not come in shame. May we not come in judgment of our neighbor. But may we come knowing that we have been forgiven. May we come knowing that we have the power to forgive others. May we come knowing that this is your world and you are doing work that we have no idea what is going on in our neighbors and our friends and our enemies' lives. And simply come to receive the joy of your wonder, to receive the joy of your kingdom, and to know that we are part of it. And so, Lord, may the sweetness on our lips turn into the sweetness of the words that we will tell others about the God they didn't know they had. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today and let us know how we are doing. Be sure to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.